All right, uh, I've got to uh, start today with a quick question, a, a poll, a survey, so to speak. I like to do this from time to time. I uh, can't see your hands being raised at home, but feel free to join in anyway. But by a show of hands, how many of you enjoy a good mystery? Let me just see. All right, the majority of us, right? Most, most folks tend to enjoy, which I find interesting in and of itself that there's something about uh, a mystery that draws us in. But what I would be curious to know is, is what you interpret uh, a mystery to be. I would imagine that most of you would assume that when I ask that question, you're thinking about a novel, uh, a, a movie, a play, some, something that involves a crime that is currently unsolved and needs to be put in place, which is a, a fairly entertaining story to, to engage in from time to time. But, but mystery can have another definition as well, right? In fact, I was looking at this online recently. It says another definition would be in a, any affair thing or person that presents features or qualities so obscure as to arouse curiosity or speculation. Now, you know what I'm talking about there. Th these are those, those moments, those instances, those, those interactions, those things that we observe that are so intriguing, they, they solicit uh, some form of speculation and curiosity, right? We just stand and we kind of marvel at them. What I would add to that definition is a sense of awe a sense of wonder, right? Those things that we encounter that we just can't really seem to explain. There are a lot of those things that we experience in life or that we've heard about. And, and let me share with you one of those mysteries that I would put at the top of my list, something that I would love to actually see in person. That's the Northern Lights, right? One of the seven wonders of the natural world. You ever seen pictures of the Northern Lights? I, I shared a few with you uh, here this morning. Any, anybody seen the Northern Lights in person? Right. Oh, man. Okay, we got to talk later. All right, Carolyn and Bob have seen it. Anyone else? I didn't see if anybody else's hand was raised. Maybe some of you at home have. Uh, every time I see these pictures and I look at them, I get two thoughts, right? The first one is, whoa. And the second one is, how? Right, like, like how does that take place? It, it's a mystery to me, right? That, it, that elicits some sense of curiosity, speculation. How does this makes sense. Well, the good news is that for a lot of mysteries that we encounter in life, you can just research it, right? So I did. I, I googled, how do the northern lights work? And I found an answer, right, that helps settle the matter. Let me just go ahead and read to you what I found online. Okay, auroras, right, because it's also auroras borealis, uh, are the result of disturbances in the magnetosphere caused by solar wind. These disturbances are sometimes strong enough to alter the trajectories of charged particles in both solar wind and magnetic spheric plasma these particles, mainly electrons and protons, precipitate into the upper atmosphere. The resulting ionization and excitation of atmospheric constituents emit light of varying color and complexity. The form of the aurora occurring within bands around polar regions is also dependent upon the amount of acceleration imparted to the precipitating particles. Precipitating protons generally produce optical emissions as incident hydrogen atoms after gaining electrons from the atmosphere. Proton auroras are usually observed at lower latitudes. Make sense? Mystery solved, right? Aren't we glad we have that explanation? Now, maybe for the scientists and the weather nuts out there, you understood what I just read. I read it and I was like, huh? Right, the mystery remained. And so I think that's a lot of times what we, we find ourselves confronted with when we see a mystery is even if it has an explanation, we need something that simplifies that explanation, right? Because it's so complex. And so I started searching for are there, are there analogies, are there metaphors, are there other explanations about the Northern Lights that can help me understand how this happens? I couldn't find an analogy or a metaphor necessarily, but I did find a simpler explanation in a, a Highlights magazine for kids. If you've ever read the Highlights magazine, 
this is this is pretty good. Northern lights and the southern lights appear when tiny particles stream out of the sun and hit the Earth's atmosphere. The particles give some of their energy to atoms and molecules of gases in the upper atmosphere, but the atoms and molecules cannot hold the energy, so they quickly give it off as another kind of energy. The colors of that light will, we will call an aurora. These lights occur most often around the North Pole and South Pole because the incoming particles have an electric charge, and as the particles arrive, Earth's magnetic fields guides them towards the poles. Better, <laughs> still kind of hard to comprehend, right? This is, this is what happens with mysteries. Even when we simplify them, we can't always fully explain away the mysterious nature of what it is that we're seeing or beholding and that, it, that we're observing. And, and so a lot of times what we struggle to do in the human existence is to find something simple to try to define and give picture to something complex. And so when you think about mysteries, think about the greatest mystery, right? The, the greatest mystery that really draws us into a spirit of awe and curiosity and wonder and speculation, things of the divine. Think about the mystery of God. All the different ways that we try to create some sort of explanation to capture something so complex and so profound. Right, I was thinking about some of the conversations that I've had with my kids over the last couple years as their minds have grown and, and begun to dive into the mystery that is God and trying to make sense of it. How do I, how do I know that this, this creator exists when I can't see him, when I don't hear him? And one of my explanations was, well, what about the wind? Can you see the wind? Do you know where it comes from? Does it talk to you? Well, no, but you see its effects. You feel it, right? Tried to find something tangible that they could hold on to that, that helped explain it in a way that they could understand, but the mystery still remains. We do this in Christianity all the time, right? We, we, we have numerous examples of attempts of us trying to capture some sort of image, some sort of metaphor that helps us explain something that is very complex. Perhaps one of the greatest authors that I've ever seen utilize this technique to explain elements of Christianity is C.S. Lewis, right? There are numerous quotes where he brings to life in a very simple way something very complex. I, I came across one recently in preparing for this message where he was talking about transformation, right? Now, you could sit down in a room with theologians and talk about the process of sanctification and have all these the, uh, theological words and terms and biblical references to help explain that process, but, but C.S. Lewis explains it in a very simple and meaningful way. Right, here's what he, how he describes it. Imagine yourself as a living house. I love that. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts. It does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. What a remarkable explanation of what happens when, when God gets a hold of us, when we're transformed in this life. It's, it's a usage of simple, profound language to capture the complex and the mystery that is often accompanied with God. We do this all the time. Now, I go to great lengths to explain this to you this morning and introduce it to you this morning because that's essentially what we're trying to do with this series and with this Lenten devotional, right? How do you take the complexity that is Jesus and, and give, some something, or give something that helps 
identify it, understand it, and get our minds wrapped around it. These names that God has given us, that the scriptures have given us, are images, metaphors, uh, ways for us to hopefully grasp the complex. And, and though it may still remain somewhat of a mystery, it gives us something that maybe we can hold on to. And, and perhaps one of the names more than any other name that we will go through through the course of this series on Sunday morning that does help explain it but still remains a mystery is what we're looking at today, which is Son of God. Right? Even, even hearing it, right, you get some sense of an answer. It, it creates a picture, but, but how does that work? What, what does that look like? How do we truly understand Jesus as the Son of God? And I would tell you that as we dive into that question today, I don't know that you're going to leave here with a better understanding of this mystery. I don't, I don't know that I can guarantee you that. It's going to remain a mystery on some level for all of us. But my hope is that we can at least explore it in a way that at the very least we are able to walk away with what are the implications of truly believing that Jesus is the Son of God, right? Whether we fully understand it, do we believe it? And, and what are the implications for us if we really do? That's, that to me is where we're really going to gain value in our time together this morning. So grab your Bibles and hold on because I don't have a specific place to tell you to turn yet. As I've told you before, uh, we uh, are going through more of a topical sermon series right now, and that means we're going to kind of be scatter shooting each and every Sunday, pulling from different texts. And so I, I do have some specific passages that we're going to read together, but that's going to happen in a little bit. I'm going to be referencing several other passages along the way to kind of set up this conversation about Jesus, the Son of God. If you want to try to flip and, and follow along, you can. You might want to just jot down some of these if you want to go read them later. That's really up to you, but I'll tell you here a little bit later where to specifically turn. Let's first talk about just the concept of a son, right? In its simplest uh, usage, we know it's a, a term for a family. It's a familial term. It, it specifies relationship. It defines context. It defines identity, right? So when you hear uh, so-and-so, especially from a biblical standpoint, is the son of whoever, right? You're now giving context to that person, what family line they're a part of, their identity, their history, their story, Right? And, and it just helps create that context. When you look at it through the Old Testament, we begin to see that sonship in particular has certain rights and privileges that maybe other familial relationships don't have. You can look at Genesis 43:33, Deuteronomy 21:17, I think, that talks about those certain privileges and rights that a firstborn son in particular may have. You, you see that the, the promise is carried through firstborn sons, sons like Isaac and Jacob. Right? They carry a certain uh, role in the, in the plan of God's salvation history. And then you see some other unique usage of the terminology of sonship, especially as it pertains to God's love for his people. Exodus 4, you have Moses interacting with God at the burning bush, and he's being commissioned to go back to Egypt. And so in chapter 4, where Moses begins to make his way, God gives some additional instruction. And he says, when you approach Pharaoh, tell him that Israel is like my firstborn son. Let my son go out and worship me. And if he doesn't, I will remove his firstborn son. And we see this really intimate connection that God has with Israel that continues to, to build upon itself throughout the prophets who often describe God's love for Israel as loving his children and what it means to be a child of God. We see a development in, in a royal tone with the Psalm. Psalm 2-7 is another great reference. And if you read your devotional last night, Brian Briscoe did a great job explaining that in your devotional, that, that it became a term that was often associated with kings. 
because they held such a special place of significance and authority and, and royalty, they were deemed to be seen as a son of God, very unique and distinct. And with that royal utilization in, in that sort of context, there became discussion in the same way that this idea of a Messiah coming, this king of kings coming from the Davidic line, that that terminology would be used that he would be a son of God. All right, so it became a, a part of the biblical narrative. But interestingly enough, in, in Hebrew and Judaic practices, they didn't use the term quite as much. They used it somewhat cautiously because it's mysterious. It's kind of confusing. What does that mean to be God's son? And there are a lot of ways that it can be misconstrued. Right? I've seen this firsthand as a former missions pastor. A lot of times when we would go overseas to other cultures, the idea of, of referring to Jesus as the son of God was a term that we would be slow and cautious to reference because a lot of times it can be misconstrued. Does that mean that, that God came, ha came down and had an inappropriate or intimate relationship with Mary? And now Jesus, like, it, it creates a lot of questions. And so it was used sparingly and cautiously in many respects, even though it was one uh, title that was often known of. And so all of a sudden, here comes Jesus. And he and others and so many begin to attribute that phrase to him and his life and his ministry. And you can imagine why it elicited such a strong reaction. And so I wanted to take some time considering the New Testament as well and seeing how this idea of Jesus as God's son is so pervasive throughout the scriptures. You, you could start with stories like the baptism and the transfiguration, right? Where, where you have like at the baptism, here comes Jesus and he's, he approaches John, the spirit of God descends upon him, the heavens open up and you hear the voice of God saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And, and right there, you have this beautiful, mysterious picture of the Trinity, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, working simultaneously. How? how? I don't know. It's still a mystery. But you see that divine relationship and connection. Same thing happens at the Transfiguration. Each gospel writer highlights different elements of Jesus' sonship, but also reiterates some of the same points and elements, right? So, so Matthew, for example, in the birth narrative of Jesus uh, in chapter one is gonna, I think, quote it. I think it's Hosea 11.1. 1, Out of Egypt, I have called my son. So Matthew makes the connection that when Joseph and Mary and Jesus have to flee to Egypt to escape Herod's edict to, to kill all those younger children, that when they return to Jerusalem, they will be returning from Egypt. And Matthew's saying that's to fulfill this promise that out of Egypt, I have called my son. You, you see additional affirmations in Matthew's gospel from the disciples, right? Peter in particular. When he goes and tries to walk on the water to meet Jesus out on the water, but then he sinks and then Jesus saves him, what does Peter declare? Oh, surely you are the son of God. Declares it again when Jesus asks, who is it that you say, or who is it that people say that I am? Right, Jesus, or Peter says, you're the Messiah, the Christ, the son of God. We, we see affirmations in Mark. Mark says in the very first line of his gospel, Mark 1.1, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God of God. What we see in Mark and other gospels is that some of the first affirmations of Jesus as being known as the Son of God come actually from the demons that are being cast out by Jesus or from Satan in the midst of his temptation, right? We see the centurion after the crucifixion declare, surely this is the Son of God. We, we see Luke use this terminology in a way that matches it back to the pre-existence of Jesus. We see Paul reference 
the Son of God, to emphasize God being, sending Jesus for the particular purpose, on a particular cause, just like a father would send a son with certain responsibilities and tasks. We see Paul accentuate the intimacy of the relationship, the love that God had as a result of sending his son. We see it time and time again throughout the New Testament. But, but perhaps more than any other New Testament writer, we find the greatest attention to it through the writings of John both in his gospel and in his letters. Let, let me offer a quick comparison. Uh, when you think about sonship, it, it's not just looking at the title son of God and seeing how often it, it emerges in the scriptures. It's, it's the whole nature of the relationship. And part of what Jesus does to teach this and accentuate it is refer to God as father, right? And so you have the Greek, Greek term for father that's used consistently throughout the gospels. But look at how it's used differently from one gospel writer to the next. Uh, that term for father is found in Mark, I believe, around four times, maybe, six times in Luke. I think it's 23 times in Matthew, and it's 107 times in John. All right, so John, this is critical to understand this, this father-son relationship. In fact, one of the first verses we'll look at is, is often seen as the thesis of John's gospel. John chapter 20, verse 31. You can turn there if you want, but we're just going to be there very quickly because it's one verse. But look at what John 20, 31 says. I've written all these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing in him, you might have life in his name. That's the whole reason John writes his gospel, so that you and I and his readers then can believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And perhaps one of the, the most critical stories, and of course there's so many, but one of the ones I would highlight for you this morning that comes from John's gospel is a moment where we see just how important this terminology is both to Jesus and his opponents of the day and the sort of reaction that it creates. This one we'll spend time reading a little bit together. Turn to John chapter 10, and we're going to start, I believe, in verse 22. Here's what it says. Just listen to this story. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews were there gathered together around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now listen to the response. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And Jesus answered them, it is, not, is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? And if you called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am the Son, I am God's Son. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father, but I do them even though you do not believe me. Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And again they tried to seize him. 
but he escaped their grasp. So, so that story, the reason I read that one to you today is for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's, it's a clear story where Jesus himself affirms his sonship. Right? Why do, you, why do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I have said I'm God's son. And yet it also reveals the tension. It, it is because of a title like this and the assertion like this that led to Jesus' death. Right? You, a mere man claiming to be God, therein lies one of the ways that we should understand this title. It absolutely encaptures the divinity of Jesus. Right? It captures the humanity of Jesus. You, a mere man, claiming to be God. Now that's a mystery. How, how, does, how does Jesus fulfill being fully God and fully man at the same time? I have no idea. But the title, Son of God, draws us into that mystery and is a way to try to explain something so complex. It speaks to the preexistent nature of Jesus, as we would find in reading the opening chapter of John's gospel. Right? It speaks to, to the relationship that he has. So part of the reason I want us to go through that quick survey of the New Testament is to first acknowledge that there is no way to deny this title being attributed to Jesus. It is pervasive in Scripture. The gospel writers, the disciples, the demons, Satan, Jesus himself all declare he is the Son of God. And so you can't escape yourself from that. And, and so part of what we need to, to see is the significance of it, and as we ask ourselves, well, what does that mean? Right, we, can, we can begin to grab a hold of some elements of this mystery to see, yes, it does accentuate the divinity of Jesus. Yes, it does accentuate the humanity of Jesus, the preexistent nature of Jesus. But if there was anything that I was going to stress for you all to consider today in light of this title, it would be the way that it reveals the love of God the Father. And I, I want us to dive into that a little bit more deeply later. Okay? Before we dive into that, the next thing I want us to do is to consider, well, what are the implications of believing that Jesus is the Son of God? Let's acknowledge that it's always going to be a certain level of a mystery. We're not always going to be able to fully grasp what it carries and what it means, but, but clearly it's important. Clearly it is pervasive without Scripture. Clearly it is what the gospel writers and so many are asserting that we need to believe. So if I believe that truly, without even being able to fully understand it, what does that mean for me? What does that accomplish in my life. And that's, to me, where this, this sermon, this message really begins to gain some traction for us in a more practical way. And John, once again, serves as a great guide for that. Now you can turn to 1 John chapter 4. A couple of things that I want to highlight for us as we consider that question this morning. Right, what does it mean for me? What are, the, what are the implications of affirming that Jesus is the Son of God? What is it truly accomplished? We're going to start in chapter 4, mindful of the fact that this terminology reveals the love of God the Father. Chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Can we say that again? God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. 
This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Here it is. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God, and so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. I love this. I mean, think, think about part of what we can learn from just that short excerpt from 1 John. Right? When we think about the idea of how do we really begin to know God's love, or even love at all, a lot of times we want to set the standard and definition of what love is. Culture is constantly trying to define what love looks like, what love does and doesn't do but but this is very clear you don't define it god does you don't love because you first loved god you know what love is because god sent his son into the world as an atoning sacrifice that's how you know what love is and that's the standard that draws you in to this mystery of understanding his son that's that's the gesture, that's the moment that brings us into being able to truly know and rely upon God's love. When you truly begin to look beyond the mystery and affirm and confess that Jesus is in fact the Son of God for all that that entails, God begins to live in you, you begin to live in him, and your life begins to look like one that knows and relies upon the love of God. Well, what, is, what does that look like? Now, what does it look like to have a life that knows and relies upon the love of God? How does that change you? Well, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were gonna be made into a decent little college, cottage, but he's building a palace where he intends to come and live in it himself. That's what the love of God does. It changes you. And the more we, we dive into it, we do see that the love that God reveals is hard. It's easy to love those who love us. It's easy for us to set the standards of what love is, what it can and cannot do, what it should and should not do. But when God sets that standard, we begin to discover real meaningful truths like don't just love those who love you, but love your enemies. Love those who persecute you. Don't be afraid. Perfect love drives out fear. That's hard. But that's the house that God is building in all of us. That's what he's trying to shape and create in all of us. And there's a reason for it. There's a very important reason for that love and why it's so necessary for us to, to acknowledge Jesus as God's son so that we can know and rely upon this love because that ends up accomplishing additional things for you and me. Let's read further. This time we'll skip down to chapter 5, verse 1 of 1 John. 
continues, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. And this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You see the theme there? Overcome. That's what this belief and this affirmation, even if you don't fully grasp the mystery, accomplishes for us. To acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God invites us into a life where we know and rely upon the love of God that transforms us and changes us. And that transformation allows us to overcome the world. Right? That, that means to become conquerors, to become victorious. Right? And I think that's something all of us would find comfort in on a day like today and in a year like this year or a season like this season, would we not? I think we would all admit this world is filled with tremendous blessings. So many moments that make us smile, that make us joyful. So many wonderful things that we can take in, so much beauty to behold that we are constantly in a position of gratitude and gratefulness. But I think we also know that this world can be incredibly harsh, filled with pain, that a lot of those joys and those blessings are often temporary, right? that we're often combating emptiness and loneliness, corruption, and all these other oppressions and injustices that consistently influence and infiltrate our lives. And so I'm curious, what are you trying to overcome today? What are the obstacles in your life? What are those hurdles, those burdens? Some of you are here trying to overcome continued failure as a result of addiction, poor choices, the shame and the guilt that maybe has accompanied one in the past. Some of you are here today trying to overcome grief, sense of loss. Maybe you're trying to overcome fear Fear of what tomorrow may bring, fear of the unknown, fear of what's expected. A lot of you in here today trying to overcome broken relationships, right? Friendships that have hurt you, left you wounded, broken families. Right? Some of you in here today thinking about a rebellious son or a defiant daughter continues to create challenges for you, your spouse. Some of you struggling with parents who have brought in abuse and heartache, more than love and comfort. What are you trying to overcome? Here's the point. We all have something. Every single one of us. And so, Believing that Jesus is the Son of God, trusting and knowing and relying upon his love leads you into the promise that whatever obstacle, whatever burden, whatever heartache this world has thrown at you, you will be victorious. Now the challenge for us is to understand what does that victory look like? 
What, what am I truly desiring? What does that overcoming ultimately manifest itself as? And John continues with that moment of clarity. Let's keep reading, this time skipping to verse 9 of chapter 5. He continues and he says, We accept human testimony. God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given us about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. And whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar. But because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son, and this is the testimony, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Sounds a lot like John 20, 31, doesn't it? John continues to make the same point. I'm writing these things so that you know that if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, your victory is eternal life. Far too often, we think that the victory that we have in Jesus is far too small. Something just for this life, right? That maybe we'll find hope in this life or meaning in this life that we'll find an illness that's cured or a relationship that's restored. And all those things are good to hope for. And yes, they sometimes happen, but the ultimate victory is eternal life. Do you really believe it? Really, like in your core, every fiber of your being, do you believe God has given you eternal life? We've had a lot of loss in our church recently. And just doing another funeral this past week, I'll, I'll confess to you. After doing that funeral, I was in my car at one point and I had the thought, do I really believe this? I like, when you go through these customs that we're so familiar with when somebody passes away and you have a memorial service and then you, you lay them in a ground to to rest. It's so permanent. And that's part of the weight that you feel. And I think it's only natural to find yourself when you're truly feeling the weight of that permanency and that new reality to ask yourself, is this really going to change? Is this person I've laid to rest truly going to have a Is that true for us? And I asked that. The minute I did, another passage came rushing into my mind. One we're not going to turn to because we don't have time to read through it in detail, but one of, one of the passages that to me is one of the most comforting in the entire New Testament, but also challenging because it addresses that question. I'm, I'm paraphrasing for us this morning, but essentially Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he asks that question, are the dead really raised? And here's how he answers it. He says, let me just go ahead and tell you, if the dead aren't raised, then our preaching is useless and your faith is futile. So let me bring that into today's context for a little bit. If you don't really believe in everlasting life, life eternal through Jesus, you are wasting your time here. Everything I'm saying to you is useless and pointless. If you're here just so that you can have more comfort tomorrow, maybe more purpose in your job, in your family, that's useless. It's pointless. In fact, Paul goes on to say, if the dead aren't raised, then neither is Jesus. And if Jesus isn't raised, 
you're still in your sins. And if that's true, and it's only for this life that we follow Jesus, then we are to be pitied more than all people. That's what Paul says if we don't really believe this. So do you? Do you truly believe it? Because if you don't, why are you here? What's the point? But make no mistake, church, what does the scripture say? How does Paul continue that letter to the church in Corinth? It may be a while since you've read it, but let me affirm for you once again that Paul resolutely encourages that church again, but Christ has been raised. And just as in Adam, we all died, so in Christ, we will all be made alive. Amen? Amen. Make no mistake about it. To affirm that Jesus is the Son of God means you and I are invited into this mystery. We begin to know and rely upon his love, a love that changes us, transforms us in a way that allows us to overcome this world by trusting and knowing that we've been giving everlasting life. That's the implications of believing that Jesus is the Son of God. So let me, let me close by trying to, to tie this together with that last point of emphasis. Does Jesus being Son of God accentuate his divinity? Yes. Does it accentuate his humanity? Absolutely. His preexistence? Yes. His purpose? Absolutely. All those things. But if there's one thing I hope you walk away with today, it's that it emphasizes and stresses his love. What do you, what do you love the most in this life? Like, think of it. What do you love the most? I would imagine that when you have that question asked of you, most of you, maybe not all, but I would, I'd be willing to bet most of you pictured someone and not something. Some relationship. It could be a spouse. It could be a sibling. Mom, dad, son, daughter be a friend, grandchild, grandparent, but it was, it was likely a relationship. See, what I believe is that God gives us all these different things in life to awaken our hearts to better understand his love. He created those relationships. He created family and friendships so that you and I can better understand love because God is love. And what love is, is it's dynamic. It's not unilateral. It's not one direction. It's, it's, it's mutual. It's an exchange. And that's only found in relationship. And the greatest relationships that truly dive into that love, one of the common denominators that we find that I, I would be willing to bet you can draw upon from personal experiences is those relationships that prompt you not just to see what you can get, but what you can give what you would do for those people that you say you love, right? Love is sacrificial. Love leads you to a place of surrender, of self-denial. That's what love does. So you think about those people in your life and what you would do for them, what you would forego, what you would compromise, what you would surrender just so they could know your love. And that's where we really begin to sit in awe of this mystery. A mystery that should prompt you to ask questions. 
that should pique your curiosity, your speculation, your awe, your wonder. Or at some point, be it today or at some point in your life, you begin to ask, how much does God really love me? How do I know that God loves us? How do I know that God loves this world? Let me remind you very simply, God so loves you. He so loves us. He so loves this world that he gave his son so that whoever would believe in him won't perish, but will have everlasting life. (laughs) What a truth to behold. So church, let's gather today and forevermore and behold such a wonderful mystery. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that our words fall short of who you are, of your love, your grace, of your sacrifice. And yet, God, you do so many things that often escape our notice to draw us into a greater awareness and understanding of your love. You give us so many gifts, so many friendships, so many loved ones that allow us to to feel deeply what it means to love. And yet every experience, every moment is an opportunity for us to, to see that you are love. And Father, we confess that one of the ways that we seek to behold that mystery today is to believe in our hearts with everything we are that, that Jesus is the Son of God. Father, we, we confess it even without fully comprehending it so that we can know and rely on your love. That will invite you in to come and shape us and mold us into the palace that you seek to create and dwell within. And as you change us and you mold us, Father, that love, that affirmation to see Jesus as your son allows us to know that this world will be overcome. The pain, the sorrow, the heartache that we may bring in to this room today, we know is temporary because we know the victory ultimately resides with Jesus. Father, we gaze into the promise of everlasting life. Though we can't fully comprehend it, Father, we give you praise for it today. We affirm heart, soul, and mind, Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and worthy of our praise. We love you, Father. We pray all these things. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen. Amen.